Lesson 2 for July 1 through to 7, Paul's Authority and Gospel. Sabbath afternoon, July 1. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to open your word again this week. And we're looking at the life of Paul. We're looking at the situations he faced. We're looking at the gospel that he preached. And we have great respect for him because of the situations he faced and the strength that he showed in standing up for you. And we pray that as we study about Paul this week and through this quarter in the book of Galatians, that we too may receive strength and that we may be committed to you as much as he was, or maybe even more. We pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Let's read that again, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Students at a university built a centre on their campus where everyone, regardless of race, gender, social status or religious beliefs, would be welcome. Imagine if years later these students returned to the campus only to discover that other students had redesigned the centre. Instead of the large room with plenty of space for socialising, designed to bring a sense of unity to everyone there, the room had been subdivided into many smaller rooms with entrance restrictions based on race, gender and so forth. The students responsible for the redesign might have argued that their authority to make these changes came from centuries-old established practice. This is something like the situation that Paul faced when he wrote his letter to the churches in Galatia. His plan that Gentiles could join on the basis of faith alone was being challenged by false teachers who insisted that Gentiles must also be circumcised before they could become members. This position, Paul saw, was an attack on the essence of the gospel itself. Thus he had to respond. The response is the letter to the Galatians. Sunday, July 2. Paul, the letter writer. Question. Read Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. What do these verses tell us about how the early church viewed Paul's writing? What does this teach us about how inspiration works? Second Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 15. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. When Paul wrote to the Galatians, he was not trying to produce a literary masterpiece. Instead, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, 
Paul was addressing specific situations that involved him and the believers in Galatia. Letters like Galatians played an essential role in Paul's apostolic ministry. As the missionary to the Gentile world, Paul founded a number of churches scattered around the Mediterranean. Although he visited these churches whenever he could, he couldn't stay in one place too long. To compensate for his absence, Paul wrote letters to the churches in order to give them guidance. Over time, copies of Paul's letters were shared with other churches, as we read in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 16. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Although some of Paul's letters have been lost, at least 13 books in the New Testament bear his name. The above words from Peter show, too, that Paul's writings were viewed as scripture even back then. This shows just how much authority his ministry eventually gained early on in the history of the church. At one time, some Christians believed that the format of Paul's letters was unique, a special format created by the Spirit in order to contain God's inspired word. This view changed when two young scholars from Oxford, Bernard Grenfell and Arthur Hunt, discovered in Egypt about 500,000 fragments of ancient papyri, documents written on papyrus, a popular writing material used several hundred years before and after Christ. In addition to finding some of the oldest copies of the New Testament, they found invoices, tax returns, receipts and personal letters. Much to everyone's surprise, the basic format of Paul's letters turned out to be common to all letter writers in his day. The format included 1. An opening salutation that mentioned the sender and the recipient, and then included a greeting. 2. A word of thanksgiving. 3. The main body of the letter. And finally, a closing remark. In short, Paul was following the basic format of his time, speaking to his contemporaries through a medium and style with which they would be familiar. And so to finish the day, a question. If the Bible were to be written today, what kind of medium, format and style do you think the Lord would use to reach us now? Monday, July 3, Paul's Calling Though Paul's epistles generally follow the basic format of ancient letters, Galatians contains a number of unique features not found in Paul's other epistles. When recognised, these differences can help us better understand the situation Paul was facing. Question. Compare Paul's opening salutation in Galatians 1, verse 1 and 2, with what he writes in Ephesians 1, 1, Philippians 1, 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, 1. In what ways is Paul's salutation in Galatians similar to and different from the others? First of all, Galatians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of 
Galatia. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. And Philippians 1 verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 1, Paul, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's opening salutation in Galatians is not only a bit longer than is in his others, but he goes out of his way to describe the basis of his apostolic authority. Literally, the word apostle means someone who is sent or a messenger. In the New Testament, in the stricter sense, it refers to the original twelve followers of Jesus and to others to whom the risen Christ appeared and commissioned to be his witnesses. Paul declares that he belongs to this elect group. The fact that Paul so strongly denies that his apostleship rests on any human being suggests that there was an attempt by some in Galatia to undermine his apostolic authority. Why? As we have seen, some in the church were not happy with Paul's message that salvation was based on faith in Christ alone and not on works of the law. They felt that Paul's gospel was undermining obedience. These troublemakers were subtle. They knew that the foundation of Paul's gospel message was tied directly to the source of his apostolic authority, and they determined to launch a powerful attack against that authority. Yet, they did not directly deny Paul's apostleship. They merely argued that it was not really too significant. They likely claimed that Paul was not one of Jesus' original followers. His authority, therefore, was not from God, but from humans. Perhaps from the church leaders from Antioch who commissioned Paul and Barnabas as missionaries in Acts chapter 13. Or perhaps... It came only from Ananias who baptised Paul in the first place, in Acts chapter 9. Paul, in their opinion, was simply a messenger from Antioch or Damascus, nothing more. Consequently, they argued that his message was merely his own opinion, not from the word of God. Paul recognised the danger these allegations posed, and so he immediately defends his God-given apostleship. So, to finish today, in what ways, even subtly, is the authority of Scripture being challenged today within the confines of our church? How can we recognise these challenges? More important, how have they perhaps influenced your own thinking in regard to the authority of the Bible? Tuesday, July 4, Paul's Gospel Question. In addition to defending his apostleship, what else does Paul emphasize in his opening greetings to the Galatians? 
First of all, we'll look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. And we'll compare that with... Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Philippians 1 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Colossians 1 2. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the unique features of Paul's letters is the way he links the words grace and peace in his greetings. The combination of these two words is a modification of the most characteristic greeting in the Greek and Jewish world. Where a Greek author would write greetings, charion, C-H-A-I-R-E-I-N, Paul writes grace, a similar-sounding word in Greek, charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. To this, Paul adds the typical Jewish greeting of peace. The combination of these two words is not a mere pleasantry. On the contrary, the words basically describe his gospel message. In fact, Paul uses these two words more than any other author in the New Testament. And his message was, that the grace and peace are not from Paul, but from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Question. What aspects of the Gospel does Paul include in Galatians 1, 1 through to 6? Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him, who called you in the grace of Christ, to a different gospel. Although Paul has little space in his opening greeting to develop the nature of the gospel, he masterfully describes the essence of the gospel in only a few short verses. What is the central truth upon which the gospel resides? According to Paul, it is not our conformity to the law, the point that Paul's opponents were trumpeting. On the contrary, The gospel rests fully on what Christ accomplished for us through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. Christ's death and resurrection did something that we never could do for ourselves. They broke the power of sin and death, freeing his followers from the power of evil, which holds so many in fear and bondage. As Paul reflects on the wonderful news of the grace and peace that God created for us in Christ, he falls into a spontaneous doxology which appears in verse 5. To whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. So to finish today, in about as many words as Paul used in Galatians 1, 1, 3-5, write down your understanding of what the gospel is all about. Bring your words to class on Sabbath. 
Wednesday, July 5. No other gospel. Question. What normally follows the opening greeting in Paul's letters? How is Galatians different from the others? First of all, we'll look at Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Well, let's look at Romans 1 verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. And Philippians 1 verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 2, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Although Paul addresses all kinds of local challenges and problems in his letters to the churches, he still makes it a practice to follow his opening greeting with a word of prayer or thanksgiving to God for the faith of his readers. He even does this in his letters to the Corinthians, who were struggling with all kinds of questionable behaviour. And we're going to have a look at a couple of those, 1 Corinthians 1, 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4 reads, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. And 1 Corinthians 5 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. The situation in Galatia is so upsetting, however, that Paul omits the thanksgiving entirely and gets right to the point. Question. What strong words does Paul use that demonstrate the degree of his concern about what was happening in Galatia? Let's read Galatians 1 verses 6 through to 9. I marvel that you were turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if any one preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. And chapter 5, verse 12. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Paul does not hold back any words in his accusation against the Galatians. Simply put, he charges them with betraying their calling as Christians. In fact, the word turning in the New King James Version, which we've just read, which appears in verse 6, often was used to describe soldiers who gave up their loyalty to their country by deserting the army. Spiritually speaking, Paul is saying that the Galatians were turncoats who were turning their backs on God. How were the Galatians deserting God? By turning to a different gospel. Paul is not saying that there is more than one gospel, though, but that there were some in the church who, by teaching that faith in Christ was not enough, as happened in Acts chapter 15, were acting as if there was another one. 
Paul is so upset by this distortion of the gospel that he desires that anyone who preaches a different gospel might fall under the curse of God, as Galatians 1 verse 8 said. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul is so emphatic about this point that he basically says the same things twice in the next verse, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. And so to finish today, there is today a tendency, even in some of our churches, to emphasise experience over doctrine. What matters most, we are told, is our experience, our relationship with God. However important experience is, what does Paul's writing here teach us about the importance of correct doctrine? Thursday, July 6, The Origin of Paul's Gospel Question. The troublemakers in Galatia were claiming that Paul's gospel was really driven by his desire to obtain the approval of others. What might Paul have done differently in his letter if he were merely seeking human approval? Let's have a look at Galatians 1, verses 6 to 9 and 11 to 24. Galatians 1, beginning at verse 6, I marvel that you were turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preached any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. And then verses 11 to 24. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. Why did Paul not require Gentile converts to be circumcised? 
Paul's opponents claimed it was because Paul wanted conversions at any cost. Maybe they thought that because Paul knew Gentiles would have reservations about circumcision, he didn't require it. He was a people pleaser. In response to such allegations, Paul points his opponents to the strong words he writes in Galatians 1, 8 and 9. If all he wanted was approval, he could surely have answered otherwise. Question. Why does Paul say it is impossible to be a follower of Christ while trying to please people? And another question. After Paul's statement in Galatians 1, 11 and 12 that he received his gospel and authority directly from God, how do his words in Galatians 1, 13 to 24 make that point? Well, Galatians 1, 13 to 24 provide an autobiographical account of Paul's situation before his conversion in verses 13 to 14, at his conversion in verses 15 to 16, and afterward verses 16 to 24. Paul claims the circumstances that surrounded each of these events make it absolutely impossible for anyone to claim that he received his gospel from anyone but God. Paul was not going to sit by and allow anyone to disparage his message by questioning his calling. He knew what happened to him, he knew what he was called to teach, and he was going to do it no matter the cost. So to finish the day, how certain are you of your calling in Christ? How can you know for sure what God has called you to do? At the same time, even if you are sure of your calling, why must you learn to listen to the counsel of others? Friday, July 7. From Sketches from the Life of Paul, page 188 to 189, we read, In almost every church there are some members who were Jews by birth. To these converts the Jewish teachers found ready access and through them gained a foothold in the churches. It was impossible by scriptural arguments to overthrow the doctrines taught by Paul. Hence they resorted to the most unscrupulous measures to counteract his influence and weaken his authority. They declared that he had not been a disciple of Jesus and had received no commission from him. Yet he had presumed to teach doctrines directly opposed to those held by Peter, James and the other apostles. Paul's soul was stirred as he saw the evils that threatened speedily to destroy these churches. He immediately wrote to the Galatians, exposing their false theories and with great severity rebuking those who had departed from the faith. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. 1. In class, read your explanations of what you understand the gospel to be. What can you learn from each other's writings? Two, in Paul's greeting to the Galatians, he declared that Jesus' death occurred for a specific reason. What was that reason, and what meaning does that have for us today? Three, in Galatians 1 verse 14, Paul says that he was extremely zealous of the traditions of my fathers. By traditions, he probably means both the oral traditions of the Pharisees and the Old Testament itself. 
What place, if any, is there for traditions in our faith? What warning might Paul's experience offer for us today in regard to the whole question of tradition? For, why was Paul so seemingly intolerant of those who believed differently from the way he did? Read again some of the things he wrote about those who had a different view of the gospel. How might someone holding such a strong, uncompromising stance be viewed in our church today? And to summarise this week's lesson, the false teachers in Galatia were trying to undermine Paul's ministry by claiming that his apostleship and gospel message were not God-given. Paul confronts both of these accusations in the opening verses of his letter to the Galatians. He boldly declares that there is only one way of salvation and describes how the events surrounding his conversion demonstrate that his calling and gospel only could be from God. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Rescue in the River, Part 1. Benjamin Mermu was crippled by polio, but he managed to get around with a cane. He was well known in the hills of Bihar in India as a witch doctor and later as a political leader. Then one day God revealed himself to Benjamin. While riding his horse, Benjamin came to a river that he needed to cross. The river was swollen and current looked dangerous. Slowly, Benjamin urged the horse into the swirling waters. The horse struggled to keep its head above water, but the swift current quickly swept the horse and river downstream. Thrashing its legs, the horse tried to find a foothold, but the water was too deep. Benjamin couldn't swim. His only hope for survival was to cling to the horse. His heart beat wildly as he tried to guide his horse forward toward shore, but the animal was helpless against the current. Fearing certain death, Benjamin cried out to God for the first time in his life, God, if you are there, please help me, help me. Suddenly, Benjamin saw two men beside him in the water. Without a word, they grabbed the horse and pulled both horse and rider to solid ground. Benjamin lay on the shore trying to catch his breath. When he turned to thank the two men who had rescued him, they were gone. His eyes scanned the flat, treeless landscape in search of the men, but they had simply disappeared. Slowly, Benjamin realised that God had answered his prayer and sent angels to rescue him. That moment marked the turning point in his life. There on the riverbank, still shaking from his ordeal, Benjamin made up his mind to become a Christian. Sometime later, Seventh-day Adventist evangelists held meetings in Benjamin's village. Benjamin attended and accepted the truth that he learned there. He asked to be baptised at the end of the meetings. But not everyone was happy to have the evangelists preach in their village. Several times people tried to disrupt the meetings. But their efforts were largely unsuccessful and a number of the new believers asked to be baptised. On the day of the baptism, the pastors encountered a crowd of drunken men along the road that led from the meeting place to the baptismal site. The men allowed the pastors to pass by, but then they blocked the road and didn't allow the believers to pass. 
Meanwhile, the pastors waited for the new believers to arrive. But as time passed and no one came, the pastors grew concerned. They sang and prayed for some time, but still the new believers didn't come. And this story is to be completed next week in next week's Inside Story. This lesson was read by Dr. Percy Harrell. It was recorded in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind. This podcast is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Hope Channel.